Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. And this week's episode is full of recommendations, reading recommendations, writing recommendations, and Milton Friedman's economic recommendations to the General Secretary of Communist China. Really? No, I'm not kidding about that last one. Here's proof. I was reading the official denunciation of Zhao that was published after the Tiananmen crackdown, and basically there's this mysterious reference to a meeting with a extreme liberal economist on the 19th of September in 1988, and it doesn't name who that person is, but I was very interested to examine who that was, and then after researching for a while, I realized that that was the day that he met with Milton Friedman. But before we dive into the struggle between communism and capitalism, we're going to get some reading recommendations from Andre Asimon, who wrote a feature for us about the magic of W.G. Sebald, the uncertainties of time and the uncomfortable truths that we can really only wrestle with in fiction. A lot of Sebald's work turns on coincidence, which is fitting given how Andre Asimon himself came across the German writer's work. I discovered Sebald when a colleague of mine gave me a ride uh, by car, and um, he had just lost his father, and he was kind of upset about that, but he didn't want to show it. And it turns out that his father had had a lifelong love for a woman who was married to someone else while the father was married to someone else. Both became widowers, and so eventually, late, late in life, they got married. And um, that was a startling revelation to the son and to me, since I was just hearing it for the first time. And, um, and the conclusion that we both drew from this new love that was an old love was that maybe the father had lived the wrong life. At which point, my colleague said to me, you know, you should read Zebald because he might um, illuminate this very concept of the wrong life or the wrong turn or the things that should have happened decades earlier and never did and might never happen in many cases. And so that same day, I was so taken by that conversation that I took a walk to Barnes & Noble and bought a volume of The Emigrants, which had just come out that very year in 1996. And I began to read it and right away from the very first sentence of the book, I was mesmerized, first of all, by the prose style. 
Now, it's a book that was written in German, but in fact, it sounded perfect in English. In fact, it was a work of literature in English. And I was so taken by that that I just finished the book that same day. Does that happen very often? No, never. <laughs> but in, in fact, the, the reason why I reacted so strongly to the book is that it spoke to me. The way we all say that certain authors speak to us as if they were reading us from inside our own head. And that's the feeling I had. The music was perfect. The language, the cadence of the sentences was just superb. And first of all, that mesmerized me. But second of all, the very idea that one could go on living and still have a feeling that this may not be quite the right life for me. I may be the wrong person for this particular life. Questions of that nature seldom occur to us or we don't let them happen because they're quite disarming and they don't make us feel very good about ourselves. But as Proust once said, essentially, one should not like oneself too much. And I don't particularly, I'm not enamored of myself. And I saw here was an author who, although extremely talented and quite adept as a person who formulates into language things that we've always thought but never quite articulated ourselves. Here was a man who may not have liked himself very much. After all, I became very interested in the life that Zebalt lived, and it turns out that he was very much like many people, like my professor, my colleague, and like myself, a transplanted person. In other words, you grow up in one place, you expect to live your life for the rest of your life in that same place or in the same country, and because of one situation or another or one choice, or as Zebalt would have said, a mistaken turn, you find yourself living quite elsewhere with another language, with another set of people, and new friends or maybe difficult friends to make, and you always feel that you are not just transplanted, but that you are, in many ways, an outsider, and ultimately an outsider to yourself, which is an idea that I've always lived with since, you know, I was in adolescence. I've always felt that I was living in the wrong country, in the wrong place, at the wrong time, sometimes with the wrong body. So if everything is wrong and you find somebody who's saying the same thing, you immediately latch on, which is what I did. So if someone doesn't necessarily feel like an outsider or is uncomfortable with the thought of being told that everything in their life is wrong, why should they read Sebald? Well, it is, I mean, if I sound as if I've made it seem that one has a sense of living the wrong life, then that's not quite Sebald, and that's not me either. It's just that in their writing, they are exploring the possibility of another identity that lives right alongside the one we have. And that, if you think about it for a minute, that is a feeling that many people have, though they don't want to explore it because it's quite unsaddling as an idea that right as I'm doing these wonderful things, have this wonderful family, have these fantastic friends and this brilliant career, Right alongside this, there is another life, another course that is kind of shadowing the one I'm on. And most people have that feeling. They don't want to explore it because it's, as I said, it's very disarming. 
and discouraging. But at the same time, it is there, and we always live that way. And I think that one of the reasons why everybody in the West at some point or another has explored the idea of psychoanalysis or therapy or whatever form it takes is because we have a feeling that we're not quite sitting in our identity. There is something else out there. And that's something that I explore as a writer and that certainly Zebalt explores. And his famous metaphor is the one of uh, amnesia. In other words, you forget something that is essential about yourself. In some cases, it's an ancestry, in a native country, or it could be the memory of your parents. And I find that in many cases, most people, if they sat by themselves and didn't distract themselves, they'll find that half their life is fantasy life and half the other life is just memory. And I think that Zebalt is the champion of the intersection of the two. Do you see any undercurrents or, I guess, precedence to Zebald's fiction in other writers? Like when I read Zebald, I see Kafka everywhere, but I'm also a Kafka fiend. Oh. <laughs> um, I don't know that Kafka is the right person for him. I think he's, I, I hate to say this, I think he's far more introspective and uh, more nuanced a writer than Kafka is. He thinks that Thomas Bernhardt was the fundamental influence on his career. I don't quite think so. I think that, and he knew it, that it has to be Proust because the whole sense of identity, memory, a retrospective glance, just as you're moving forward in life, all this is totally Proustian. And maybe I'm fabricating this connection because it is my intersection with Zebalt through Proust. That's fair. I think we all read our own influences and our own obsessions into the books we pick up. Oh, absolutely. We are always projecting what we want to see or what we cannot help but see. And in fact, that's how I read Zebalt. I am projecting not just the other authors I have read in my life and that I think reflect or are refracted in Zebalt, but I project myself. And Basically, some authors allow you to project yourself into them, even though it is a totally mistaken projection. But it's how you read, and it's how we basically take on an author and, and absorb him. I, I do think that the story of this transplanted soul that lives the wrong life, as in the book The Emigrants, these are all people who, are, who don't belong. They just don't belong in time and in space. In the end, you have to ask yourself, maybe it's not time or space that was wrong. It is their life itself that was wrong. And how can you say that about someone? You cannot. But it's a thought that flickers in and sort of skitters out of your perception because we can't tolerate such an idea. Right. You can't say it, but you can read it if someone else says it. Yeah. <laughs> You can certainly read it in somebody else's words, and then you can close the book, and then you move on to go to the movies or whatever. Um, but it is there. And it's not even a tragic reading because Zebalt is not a depressing author. However, there's a touch of the sinister in him because he is brooding about subjects that we normally don't want to think about. And one of the most obvious ones is the Holocaust. In, in I think in about 50 years, 
Most of the Holocaust books we will have read in our lifetime will have disappeared, and yet Zebalt would be the most profound reflection on the subject of the Holocaust because it is absent and yet it is over, over, how should it, overarching in its presence. It does not get always mentioned, but it's there. It reminds me a little bit of Adorno's famous proclamation about there's no poetry after the Holocaust. Yes. Because it seems almost as though he meant there is no poetry without it being steeped in the Holocaust. Well, yes. I mean, you could be cynical sometimes and say that here's a writer who used the Holocaust as a mechanism by which to enter into the psyche of people who have been disturbed by history or disturbed because they were never quite in the se- in the place they should have been. And the Holocaust works as a very convenient um, metaphor for displacement, for suffering, for essentially have been totally, totally uprooted, not just from your country, but from your family, from everything you were supposed to have become. But at the same time, coming from a German writer who was himself transplanted into England and who felt that he belonged now more to England than to Germany, even if he continued to write in German, you feel that here's a man who who has experienced, um, I would say by a refracted glance, the very experience of the Jews of Germany and of Eastern Europe. So if one has not had the good fortune to have already read Sebald, where should we start? Well, there are two books that I happen to love a lot. One is called The Emigrants, and it's made up of four novellas. The first one for me is what got me totally hooked onto Sebald because it is about a Jewish doctor who doesn't tell you that he's Jewish, and there is no mention of the Holocaust at all in that story. And I always think that it's there. It's just hidden in the corners. Um, that's the, the, the story that one should read because everything that Zebalt writes after that is, in fact, derived from the book The Emigrants. But I think that the, the, the novel Austerlitz is simply brilliant. It is totally brilliant. And I think it's the first classic of the past 50 years, I would say, in any language and it will survive. It's a story of a son who has totally forgotten his memory and who grows up in England as a part of the kinder transport, children who were basically allowed to flee Nazi Germany or Czechoslovakia and who ended up in England, hosted by families who did not always tell them what their point of origin was. And this man called Austerlitz gradually discovers that he is possibly Jewish, that his parents were killed in the Holocaust, and that he's going back to his birthplace to find the point of origin. And it is, in that respect, a brilliant, brilliant novel that could easily be made into a movie and hasn't yet, as far as I know. So those are the two books I would recommend, The Emigrants and Austerlitz. If you haven't had a chance to yet, be sure to read Andre Asiman's essay in our winter issue, The Life Unlived. And feel free at this point to change your current plans and walk to the nearest bookstore to buy The Emigrants and Austerlitz, as recommended by Andre, because our next segment is Perfect Walking Listening. Rowan Ricardo Phillips is an award-winning poet who often composes his lines on the move. We published a selection of his poems last year, including Halo, which he'll be reading for us in this segment. 
You'll also be able to find the poem in the Best American Poetry 2017 collection, which is coming out later this year. I caught up with Rowan after walking over to Poet's House in New York, which, and here's another recommendation, you should definitely visit if you're ever in the city. It's a 70,000 volume poetry library, National Literary Center and creative space that looks right out onto the Hudson River. It's totally free to sit in a comfy chair or at a desk and just read and write for hours while your cousins look at the Statue of Liberty. Not that I've ever done this. Anyway, Poet's House was Rowan's suggestion, um, and it was fitting because when I asked him where he most liked to write, well, this is what he said. For me, the process of getting it done is more important than the place. I know I can't write in cafes. I love Paris, but I, I, I just a cafe for me is a place to... Uh, drink coffee and stare out of the window. But I do like being near water. You know, I used to live in the West Village, not too far away from here. And I don't think any at any point in my life I've lived further than like maybe half a mile away from the ocean or sea or a river. Yeah, that's a really important part of my uh, process and day-to-day life. That's what I really love about New York. It seems hemmed in, but we're right next to the Atlantic. And, you know, the river flows out into the ocean. I am an avid walker. I love to walk, and I write in my head largely. Eventually, I start to write down things in notebooks, and sometimes I just go straight into typing into my computer. But for the most part, I walk. You know, I don't walk with uh, earbuds or listen to music, but I just try to walk every place that I'm going. And, you know, in the steps and the pace of my own life and the life around me, um, start to kind of craft ideas about poems really i don't go on walks to compose but in just in the act of walking and going from place to place particularly in new york um, but most places that i'm in just kind of like the kaleidoscopic nature of being in the middle of the cosmos that's you know any place a city a town just even out in the country language starts to come to me and then it starts to kind of parcel itself out into lines and sentences and stanzas and the such but I'm definitely not a, this is my writing desk, it faces this view, and I sit here for 10 hours a day and write. I just kind of live my life, and I kind of trust the intuitive organs, right? Your, your brain and your heart and all those glands and everything like that, and you just kind of like let everything oxygenate in your head. And eventually when you go down to the writing process, which I think is more actually biomechanical than it is metaphysical or creative, you have so many different versions in your head of any given line. Like if you have a line that says, I walked to the store, but it was closed. You know, by the time you write that down, after having thought of it or imagined it, you have so many different variations of that. I walked to the bodega, but it was closed. And you have that BB or, you know, I walked to the grocery store, but it was closed. Or I walked to the grocery store, but somebody was sitting outside who told me it was closed. Like all those types of versions. And sometimes we think, oh, I've got this idea, let me write it down. But I think that writing something down immediately kind of ossifies it sometimes, you know what I mean? Because it becomes that thing, and only that thing. Um, It becomes exclusive to kind of the material of a word. But when it's in your head, for any amount of time that it's there before you write it down, it exists in this nascent state of being many things at the same time, right? You know, Emily Dickinson's poem, I dwell in possibility, a fairer house than prose. That possibility... Um, when it's oral and diaphanous and pre-written is really a way in which I can kind of work out tone and metaphor and intent and argument and stuff like that. So my process is really 
it's really less about the writing, which I think is separate and very important, but separate, but much more mechanical, I think. And it's more about letting the things exist and be tenuous and um, independently dependent. And I guess when I say independently dependent, I mean that, you know, they're independent because they could be many things, but they're dependent on you remembering them. A lot of times people write things down because they don't want to forget. But I like the possibility of forgetting. I mean, I feel as though if a line is good, you will remember it, or at least you'll remember some conjugation of it. And that's much more important to me than just having it down, because having it down is just the adrenaline of having thought of something. Oh, my God, I thought of something. Isn't that great? But I like the risk of forgetting something. If it's good, you remember it. You know what I mean? If I do forget something, I think that's part of the process, right? You know, I, I just, I really think that something, there's some stickum to good language. And even if you don't remember it exactly as it was, that's fine. Then you'll, you'll engage it in these stress tests and torque it and twist it. And it will be something that's really feral and, and alive. So forgetting's a part of life. You forget things sometimes and then you remember. That's what's beautiful about them. And I don't, I think there's something kind of fraught and overly precious and tragic about thinking that you might forget something. But, you know, you and I might go through a song like, oh, remember that song by Information Society? How's it go again? And then we kind of start to put it together, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's really humane and what being alive is all about much more than, oh, yeah, I remember that. And then I just kind of like sing the whole song to you from beginning to end. It's kind of like we've gone through the song, but that doesn't have the same kind of giddy up of human contact. So. No, I don't worry about forgetting things. I don't, I don't mind. I actually kind of like it. These three poems that Lanny published in the American Scholar, I was working on at the same time to the point where, yeah, I was kind of writing, I was writing these poems down after having lived with them in my head for a while. And I found myself really thinking about um, that bridge between the thing that's intangible and inspires you and the thing that you kind of put your stamp on as a tangible thing, the poem itself. And the poem Halo has this kind of turn in it where, you know, you're being asked to take the poem and hold it up to the light and see if it illuminates, see if it kind of hovers above your head, not, you know, as a piece of language on a page, but as something glorious and and mythical and beautiful and inspiring, you know? So I wouldn't call it an Ars Poetica, but I I will say that a lot of what I aspire for in poetry and in the connection that I hope for between a poem I write and a reader, if I'm fortunate to have one, I think kind of acts itself out in that that poem. Would you mind reading it for us? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Halo. We wander round ring after ring of life one after another, blossoms of light, to which we're but a mere flotsam of bees. And although this isn't true, the poem says this is true. Life, light, flowers, and bee. Truths. So stop and hold this poem above your head. Hold it up to whatever light you find then let it go. Forget it, if you can. If it is meant to remain, it will remain. And if it's meant to light, it will light. Your hands will have moved on to something else, but your head will have 
Say it. It's Halo. Milton Friedman won the Nobel Prize after 50 years of being an evangelist for free market fundamentalism. You would think, then, that visiting communist China would be anathema for this bourgeois economist. But actually, he visited the People's Republic not once, but three times. And when he first went in 1980, he was one of the very first American academics to visit, ever. Julian Gewirtz, a historian specializing in Chinese history, stumbled upon the official records of these visits doing research for his undergraduate thesis. He's now writing a book about Zhao Ziyang, who you'll meet in this segment, but he took a break to talk about Milton Friedman's misadventures in China. It's an excerpt from his new book, Unlikely Partners, Chinese Reformers, Western Economists, and the Making of Global China, which is out now. I sat down with Julian to talk in our studio. I sat down with Julian in our studio to talk about how on earth the patron saint of the free market ended up in China three times. So it is a truly extraordinary and, and profoundly unlikely circumstance to imagine that in 1980, just a couple years after China opened its economy to the outside world, the most famous free market advocate visited the country, and not just visited the country, but went to provide economic advice. Now, what was he doing there? He was certainly not there to evangelize for his free market ideas, at least in the minds of the Chinese. They invited him because they were really worried about a problem that economies all over the world suffer from, inflation. And Milton Friedman had become famous around the world for studying and helping to understand the sources of inflation and in proposing policies that could help fight back uh, against its development in the economy. So the Chinese invited him because they wanted the world's preeminent expert on inflation. They didn't know what they were getting, though, because they were not aware of his incredible free market fundamentalism, his deep belief that free private markets were the solution to most economic problems. So his visit to China in 1980 didn't go too well because they wanted an expert, and along with that expertise, they got a heavy dose of free market ideology. Which would lead you to believe that they wouldn't invite him back again. But they did, in fact, invite him back eight years later, and for a meeting with the General Secretary Zhao Ziyang, no less. So what changed between 1980 and 1988? So the main thing that changed in those eight years was the Chinese economy itself. In 1980, China was still really poor, with a per capita gross domestic product of around 200 U.S. dollars. By 1988, China had made a lot of headway in opening its economy and growing rapidly. Chinese economists had engaged for years with economists from all around the world, and so their sophistication was also much higher. So when Friedman came back in 88, he delivered a very similar spiel to what he delivered in 1980, but there was a greater degree of receptivity because the Chinese knew better what to do with that kind of information. 
And the general secretary that Friedman met with, Zhao Ziyang, had a really different perspective from a lot of these other party officials, right? Whether conservative ones who were advocating against price reform or Deng, who was advocating for reform and opening. What made Zhao different? To me, Zhao is a deeply fascinating figure because it was not as if he had spent a lot of time in market economies or had lived abroad extensively. He'd only graduated from high school. But he really developed a lot of the economic policies that transformed China. Deng Xiaoping is often called the architect of China's reform and opening up. But actually, Deng, while he set the broad vision, the path forward, was not that involved in the day-to-day details of policy. Zhao Ziyang, however, was the person who was involved in those day-to-day details, who then drove them through a very complicated political landscape. So... To me, Zhao Ziyang is one of these fascinating figures who, although he was extraordinarily powerful and influential, has been sidelined and marginalized in the history of China's transformation. He engaged with a whole variety of economists from all around the world, some of whom were from reform socialist countries in Eastern Europe, and many of whom were from Western market economies like Milton Friedman. And Zhao's greatest ability in these interactions with foreign economists was his open-mindedness. He would not interrupt them to say, what you're saying is impossible in a socialist society. He would hear them out, he would ask probing questions, and he would then take what he thought was useful, what he thought could be applied to China's economy, and then try to develop policies in response. So when Zhao met with Milton Friedman, how well did they get along? And did they agree on anything? So so Friedman and Zhao came from totally different worlds and had very, very different basic assumptions about the way the world ought to work. When they met, though, they did get along really well. And it's one of the uh, very interesting things about this strange story of Milton Friedman's journey in China that he got a very chilly reception from many of his Chinese interlocutors. But in meeting with Zhao Ziyang, they joked around. They spent a couple hours together. Zhao was intensely engaged, and both men rated the meeting very highly. And it's interesting to me to think about how Zhao Ziyang used the meeting. He didn't just use it for a back and forth with freedmen to get good ideas. He knew that his position was precarious in late 1988 and that the position of the reforms were precarious. So he used the meeting as a PR event. He walked Milton Friedman out of the meeting all the way to his car in an event that was very highly publicized. And in Beijing at the time, there was always tea leaf reading going on about which ideas were in favor and what the senior leaders were thinking. And this was a really strong gesture that got a lot of attention. Milton Friedman was also written up in the People's Daily, the official newspaper of the Chinese Communist Party, in very laudatory terms. So Zhao really used this meeting to show that a prominent Nobel laureate from the United States had come and uh, had given his approval as it was presented to what Zhao Ziyang was doing. Mm -hmm. And ultimately that was used against him later, right? Right. So that's one of the great ironies of this, that in the official readout on how the leadership had put down the student movement, they said that on September 19th of the previous year, Comrade Zhao Ziyang had met with one extreme liberal American economist. They didn't name him. And this was presented as really core evidence of his mission to overthrow socialism, uh, or so they said. Because of the way in which he fell from power, 
in this extraordinarily sensitive episode around Tiananmen Square. His name never appears in print in China. When he died, he had a very short 50-something word obituary that didn't even mention that he had been premier or general secretary, simply referred to him as a comrade. So how did you even discover that this event took place? If you can't find references to this figure, to Zhao, in Chinese texts, and he's been erased from the record, how did you do that research? So there's a tremendous amount of material on Zhao Ziyang, but very little of it is readily available to the public. There has been some really remarkable material that's been published recently in Hong Kong. These are internal Chinese Communist Party documents that have been taken out of China by former officials and published. There are also internal Chinese government documents that, while not widely publicly available, are held in research libraries and are available to scholars who are tenacious in looking for them. There's also been a big wave of memoir writing by officials and economists from this period, and they are very careful when they address directly sensitive issues like the Tiananmen Square crackdown, but they are able to speak much more openly about their experiences, which gives scholars a lot of texture on what happened in the period. So I was researching this period in China, and I was very interested in Zhao Ziyang and in the elite politics of this period. And I was reading this, uh, this document, the official denunciation of Zhao and summary of how the party put down the student movement. And yeah, on page two, there is this very prominent reference, but it doesn't say who it is. And immediately, as, you know, as a historian, you come across a prominent document with some event alluded to but not clarified. You want to go keep digging. And so I did that, and when I discovered that it was Milton Friedman, an extraordinarily unlikely figure to be allegedly plotting with the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, I knew that there was more to the story. And has Zhao's story been told? He has really been written out of the history. And scholars in China today are, of course, aware of Zhao Ziyang's extraordinary role, but they can't publish or write in any great detail about what he did in the mainland. So for foreign scholars, I think it's important to do what we can to help tell a fuller and truer story about how China transformed. In China today, we are seeing a real turn inward. There's a real push to have China more insulated from foreign influences in universities, in think tanks, and throughout society. So when we think about the 1980s, we see a time period when there was extraordinary openness to a range of views that even could encompass Milton Friedman. It's an ironic story in that regard, too, because while China might be more inward-facing politically right now, the economic position that it's formed in the past 20 years really came from outside. I mean, the Communist Party ousted Zhao for trying to overthrow socialism and replace it with capitalism. But 20 years later, China is closer to pure capitalism than it ever was under Zhao. So how did the ruling elites justify kicking him out and then implementing basically the same policies that he championed? So when Zhao Ziyang was removed from power, the main driver for that at the time was that he was unwilling to use the military to suppress and disband the student movement centered on Tiananmen Square. So there was really a political motivation for getting rid of him. 
what they decided to do, which is to me a very interesting decision that has ramifications for China today, is they decided to say that Zhao had been too interested in economic and political reform together. He had wanted to liberalize China in its economy, but also in its society. The Chinese government created a distinction, which was that it was okay for economic reform to move forward, but political liberalization was more sensitive than ever. And so in looking at how China has changed since Zhao Ziyang, so many of the policies that were enacted in the 1990s after he was removed from power and placed under house arrest, so many of those policies are very close, if not directly linked, to the policies that he advocated and developed. But political reform has stalled. That bifurcation is at the heart of China today. And so how active was Zhao in advocating for the liberalization of the political system while he was still in power? Is there evidence of that? So Zhao Ziyang was a party man, but he understood that China's economic reforms could only go so far if there were not also reforms to the political system. The socialist political system that had developed created enormous power in the hands of party secretaries and party officials. And that power is not just political, but is also economic. So looking at China today, one of the big ongoing problems is this problem of, of rent seeking, of using political power to gain profit. And that's at the heart of the ongoing anti-corruption crackdown that we see where officials have power that allows them to make huge fortunes and to do so in a way that is undermining the legitimacy of the regime and creating very, very deep inequalities in Chinese society. Part of the problem with the inequality in China today is that a lot of the reforms towards a more liberal free market are the very same ones that are exacerbating the inequalities. The open-mindedness of the 80s was wonderful, and it seems really great. But on the other hand, those reforms, while they did lift China out of poverty, they're in the same sort of manufacturing crisis that we have here. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the way forward? So one of the big challenges as we think about China's inequality is the question of, of redistribution. In the Mao period, the state was highly redistributive. It was looking to create a kind of utopian equality. In the current moment, Deng Xiaoping's philosophy of letting some people get rich first. Was that an official policy? Mm -hmm. Let some people get rich first? That's right. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So in the, in the transition out of socialism, Deng said, it's inevitable that some people are going to get rich first. And there was this famous slogan that was attributed to him. And to Deng, it was more important that China as a whole should become wealthy and powerful and modern than to solve the problem of inequality at the very beginning. However, he did set out a series of goals that would see China deal with inequality by bringing up those who were left behind. And one of the big deadlines, so to speak, is the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. By 2021, the Chinese Communist Party has to help people get out of poverty in a much more serious way than they have thus far, or else they're going to have to figure out a way to fudge not quite realizing Deng Xiaoping's promise to help people uh, become moderately prosperous by 2021. So one of the big challenges going on right now for the Chinese leadership is finding a way to deal with extreme poverty, people who are still on less than, let's say, two U.S. dollars a day. 
Then, longer term, they've committed to deal with the broader systemic inequality, though, frankly, it's going to be a big challenge, as it is all around the world. In China, the scope is even larger, 1.4 billion people, and the inequality is, in some sense, even more acute. But it's a, it's a real challenge for any economic system. I think that the Chinese would like us to think that they have more tools to use, perhaps, because of the major and enduring role for the state in the economy and the ideology of redistribution. But we'll see. That's it for Smarty Pants this week. Thanks for tuning in to all of our suggestions, reading or otherwise. And if you need a reminder of anything that you heard in this episode, be sure to check out our website at theamericanscholar.org slash podcast, where you can find individual episode links and also a list of all of the pieces, essays, and poems mentioned in each one. And as ever, if you have any suggestions or you think our recommendations this week were bunk, feel free to let us know at podcast at theamericanscholar.org. We'll see you in two weeks. In the meantime, take care and stay sharp. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.